How do multifamily owners retain renters and increase net operating income? Well, we're on a journey to find out. You're listening to Amenitize or Die, tactics and strategies from the front line of multifamily. I'm your host, Scott Patterson, Marine Corps veteran, founder of Tumble Smart Laundry, on the mission to increase your NOI through those shared laundry rooms. Today, we've got Liza Benson, partner at Modern Ventures and currently investing out of their $200 million fund into property technology companies. Uh, pretty excited. Been a part of uh, this modern program for the last year, and you certainly brought it in, but uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott. Happy to be here. All right. So let's let's start there uh, with with you and Modern and how, you know, what was your background before and how did you get on the team there? Yeah, sure. So let me first by starting starting to talk a little bit about Modern Ventures and, and who we are. So we are a venture capital fund that invests in technologies around real estate, home services, fintech and insure tech having to do with real estate. But we are different from your normal venture capital fund. The majority of our LPs are strategic meaning they're coming from the real estate industry. That could be multifamily, that could be residential, that could be commercial. And these are some of the largest asset owners in the world. And fundamentally, they're investing in us, yes, for the venture returns, but even more importantly, for the innovation that we bring into their businesses to ultimately improve them and improve NOI, whether that's through increased revenue or decreased operating expenses. The way we work with companies is also very unique. We have a program called Passport, which Scott has been going through for obviously the past year or so. And what we do during that program is we take a six months, uh, we take a cohort of companies that we think can be really impactful to the real estate industry. And we mentor them and we put them re- with real estate execs and we get them pilots and revenue, you know, within our LP base and our larger group of 700 real estate execs. So that's a little bit about modern ventures. We now have about 450 million of assets under management um, through our different funds. Um, in addition, um, I have been a partner here for about five years. Um, Constance and I actually, who's my partner at Modern, started out as friends. Uh, we were on a board together in Chicago. And when the opportunity came uh, to join Modern, I was super excited because I've been in venture for about 25 years, if you can believe it. And the oper- there's so much money out there. And I really think that you need to have something special in the venture business to not just pay the highest price for everything out there as your only competitive advantage. And what we do with almost being like a vertically integrated VC is we work with RLPs to bring value to the companies that we work with. And therefore, those companies get customers. So we're really stacking the deck for our companies. And there's a reason to have Modern on the cap table other than just our money's green. Yeah. Well, and even even more down that vein, right? So real estate in general has not typically been on the cutting edge of innovation, right? So here's this opportunity to not only put money to work, right, and and gain those venture returns, but also like really get a great platform of vetting companies and and seeing what actually kind of matters and, and drives those, you know, either de- decreasing operating expenses or driving ancillary revenue or increasing resident experience, all those things that we've been talking about for uh, so long. So. Um, well, so what what were you doing before modern, um, still property or. So I actually, this is my first foray into real estate tech. Um, I had been more of a a generalist venture capitalist investing, investing in B2B SaaS. Um, I was with a firm called Starvest. Uh, that's where I actually met Constance. And prior to that, I was with one group of people for 14 years, uh, in a venture firm that was originally started out of Bear Stearns. 
and then became part of JP Morgan and then Highbridge. So um, we actually are the title of our fund or the it was Media and Telecom because SaaS actually didn't even exist in 2000. Um, that wasn't a thing. You know, there was enterprise software with, with maintenance payments. And, you know, at that fund, we invested uh, cable networks, again, something that you're not going to see around today. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we did actually invest in some of the first B2B SaaS companies. I was an early investor in Capital IQ, uh, which eventually uh, sold to uh, McGraw-Hill. But um, I had a really long um, career in the venture capital and sort of growth equity industry. And what attracted Constance, my partner, to me was my varied experience and my ability to do due diligence on lots of different types of businesses. If you look at the modern portfolio, just like looking at you, Scott, and Tumble, you're not a traditional software business, right? So, you know, everything from smart washing machines to EV chargers to digital infrastructure uh, for multifamily. So all of the businesses that we look at, you know, often have very different uh, business models. So um, my ability to have kind of a broader view on the world rather than just narrowly real estate was appealing to my partner. Yeah. I, and I mean, so the, the differences between residential real estate where, you know, maybe it's single family, you right. know, your sort of traditional uh, serving real estate agents or brokers or, or buying single family homes, then moving to multifamily, which is a whole different ballgame, and then moving to commercial real estate, which is even more of a different ballgame. Um, it's really kind of an interesting area to be invested because things are so different. And I mean, one of the huge values that I, well, there's a lot of value to being part of modern, but one of the most interesting things to me is being able to see all of it, right? Because you, right. you guys do these uh, these sort of industry analysis presentations. I mean, we and we also uh, think about things a little bit differently in terms of, you know, we say real estate tech, we actually don't say prop tech very often because, you know, we really like companies that have multi-vertical applications. And, and it's not every company, but, but that's, you know, quite a few of them. And if they don't have multi-vertical applications, we like them to have sort of a recession scenario. People always clean their clothes, uh, Scott, no matter if it's a good time or, or a bad time, right? So uh, you certainly fit into that vein. Um, so like, you know, thinking about one of our earlier companies in my uh, partner's sort of original uh, fund that was pre-modern was DocuSign. And, you know, DocuSign obviously has applicability uh, to real estate and to finance and to insurance and to all of these things, but certainly you wouldn't call it a prop tech company in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And we really like companies that have that multi-vertical application because real estate fundamentally is a very cyclical industry, right? So um, there's ups, there's downs. We're about to go through obviously something in Resi, um, you know, pretty dire over the next year. So, you know, we really do look to companies to have, um, you know, a strong interest and channel in real estate, or but also, you know, think about other verticals as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really interesting. And, and I mean, and DocuSign, right? I mean, if you're buying a house, there's uh there's so much paperwork and, you know, like imagine, I mean, imagine if DocuSign wasn't around for 2020. I mean, like what a, what a, what, what timing there, you know, for all that to, to be going on. So let's, let's kind of move into sort of the amenity side here, right. right? And, and sort of the technology finally really getting into real estate um, and, and being pretty widespread. I mean, I was just at Optech. Um, it was interesting. Uh, lots of vendors, lots of different ideas out there. Um, you know, what, what are you seeing as, you know, a trend I'm, we're investing in these types of companies because we think this is actually kind of the future of where multifamily and, and some of these sort of real estate deals are going. 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think there's sort of an overarching theme, um, which is that you're having, obviously, we're in a super inflationary environment. We're in a super tight labor market, right? And, you know, that sort of started, you know, with the pandemic and, you know, has has continued, right? So, unfortunately, it was not um, transitory inflation. We're in, we're in sort of a, you know, longer inflationary cycle. And, you know, all of these operators or multifamily commercial assets are feeling that pain, right? They're feeling the pain of, of not being able to keep employees, of wage inflation, of every supply that they use, you know, going up in costs. So I think the importance of technology in real estate is even becoming more important when you have this inflationary environment on the wages side, because the less people you can have, you know, really fundamentally the better, right? So you need to put a digital backbone in your multifamily so you can do um, you know, self-guided tours, right? So you can you can have you know less leasing agents on staff. You need to have you know a technology-enabled maintenance request system so that you can have fewer people going from one place to one place. One of the other companies in um, in your class at in Passport RentCheck, you know, serving to do um, security deposit returns and inspections for SFR single-family rental. Um, having the um, the tenant actually, you know, do this assessment themselves with their phone, that saves maintenance personnel and from driving around and taking pictures and saves time. So I think all of these, you know, trends are sort of coming out of this overarching things that we saw during the pandemic where people actually couldn't be there. And then coupled with the wage inflation and, and lack of, you know, people to, to employ in some of these jobs. So I think you're going to continue to see those tailwinds continue. Um, certainly in the near future. And what, once these things become embedded in, in processes and this is the way that things are done, I mean, I, I, I don't see it going the other way necessarily because, you know, obviously it's better, cheaper, faster, which is fundamentally, you know, as, as VC is what we're trying to do. Yeah. No, we had, uh, had Marco on uh, earlier and uh, talked about Renchek. Um, always, always great. Um, so what it, one of the things that I, I really like about real estate, right, is the sort of um, price per square foot, right? It's all, all, all comes down to sort of how are you monetizing square footage. And w right now, especially like Manhattan, New York, Los Angeles, any sort of urban center, that square footage is is not a lot if you're uh, if you're living there typically. So um, what are some of the ways that you think that the technologies of today will be levered in the future to make those resident experiences better. Um, because, you know, hopefully inflation goes away, right? Maybe not totally away, but hopefully it gets under control. Right. 2025 sounds great. Would love to plan on that. Um, but, you know, what What happens in five years, right? What happens in 2028? What happens in 2030? You know, what? how, how will we be living uh, with some of these things like AI and, um, automation really coming prevalent, uh, you know, in, in the 2020s. Yeah. I mean, I think there's actually some really interesting, you know, trends happening, right? So, you know, your large multifamily owners, you know, are they, um, just your apartment building or are they brands and lifestyles? Right. So, and I, and I think that that has been something, actually there was an announcement uh, a couple of weeks ago that Marriott's getting into the multifamily business. So, if you see, you know, that resident experience and that hospitality like experience, I think, you know, in a technology enabled way. Right. So we're used to getting our DoorDash on our phone and we're used to, you know, ordering everything up that we need, you know, on, on our phone. But in, in multifamily, that's not necessarily the case. So, you know, I think 
the amenization of the tenant experience in, with hospitality as, aspects, but with a technology backbone where um, tenants are engaged, you know, you know, via the app, right? So and that, that goes in many ways, right? You know, a lot of things we're seeing with uh, taking from the hospitality industry with rewards and points. There's a lot of companies sort of working on that. I mean, you know, rent is a, a giant line item in most people's budget and we get no credit for it, not with the credit bureaus. We don't get credit for it um, uh, only, only if we get, you know, say a negative thing that would that end up on your credit report, but how about all the positive things that you pay, you pay your rent on time. How about points? Like, why don't we get some sort of points or bonuses or discounts for, for paying, you know, the largest line item in our budget every month. So I think there's some happening, happening sort of the, uh, hospitality aspects are coming into, into play. Um, we have a company that we invested in, in much earlier called Hello Alfred, which is bringing like the true hospitality-like services to multifamily, uh, where you'd actually have an Alfred and come in and you know water your plants and take your groceries out and pick up your dry cleaning. And you know what what is ultimately the point of that from an owner's perspective is you know those those residents stay longer, they're happier, um, they have longer tenancies with you, and you know reducing churn increases fundamentally you know NOI. So I think there's going to be you know a bunch of hospitality sort of like aspects um, that start to come into start to come into multifamily and, you know, thinking about some of the large brands and multifamily as lifestyles, as opposed to, um, you know, just the apartment building you live in. So I think that is certainly going to be a trend, you know, over the next couple of years um, where, you know, multifamilies turn into more lifestyle brands than necessarily just apartment buildings. Yeah. So Airbnb, for instance, right. One of the Airbnb like rose to be so, so big and prominent and, you know, the, the largest hotel chain doesn't own any rooms. Right. Um, but one of the things that I, I always like laugh about is, you know, we, when we travel, we still stay in hotels because of, you know, I, I don't want to clean and take out garbage and, and do all this other stuff. So, um, there's been a whole new sort of shift back to hotels because of all of those amenities. Right. And it almost becomes, you know, when I was in college, of course, we would go to Airbnbs because they were cheaper, right? They were everywhere. Um, but now, you know, I'm not in college and uh, I kind of would like my room cleaned every day and, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, I want to be able to send my laundry out uh, when I'm when I'm traveling. So it is it is interesting how, you know, price certainly drives a lot of these these things. And what am I getting for that value? Um, but you know, I, I, I totally see that multifamily is going to be amenitized in, in ways that, well, one that we probably haven't, haven't even thought sure. of yet. Um, but, but two, like I, I, I do see what I would think it's just like you said, like a lifestyle brand, being able to move between different properties kind of fluidly. Not that I think I would do that, but I'm sure people would. Um, There's yeah, always that yeah, little nomad, right? Who likes to go from, you know, Uruguay to, uh, you know, England in, in, you know, every two week period. But I don't know how big that market is necessarily, right. but um, I do think, I think you sort of touched on sort of the short term rental piece of it. And, you know, I think there is a way, certainly on lease up, certainly, you know, if the rental market becomes softer to, you know, kind of corporatize the short term rental. And obviously a lot of companies are out there doing that so that there's a more consistent experience than there was before. I think the difference sort of from pre-pandemic to now is, you know, fundamentally, a lot of these companies are trying to work the arbitrage between short-term rent and, you know, long-term rent. And 
you know, now I think we're really seeing it more with management agreements because no one's really looking to take on, um, you know, these leases given what happened during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, and, you know, they were left with long-term leases and no short-term renters. So um, I think that completely exists because business travelers like you, Scott, don't want to uh, stay in an unbranded experience that doesn't have little shampoos and, you know, clean properly and all the things that we, uh, you know, appreciate. My Nespresso machine that's like on my, my, you know, yeah, like that's, I, I will judge an entire hotel off of the coffee. That's all. But maybe if you were the type of guy who was spending two weeks or three weeks in a place, you would appreciate the kitchen. You don't necessarily, you know, get, get in a hotel. So you didn't, you know, gain too much weight eating, you know, fast food and dinners out every night, right? Something like that. So I think there there certainly is a, a market for that. And, you know, again, instead of the arbitrage play, I think it's really about enabling multifamilies out there to monetize perhaps apartments that they haven't leased yet in a short-term rental format, but in a very much regulated, you know, um, corporate type of way um, where they're very aware that these are short-term renters that are coming in. It's not tenants sort of skirting the rules or things that's in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I travel so much. I, I already feel like a digital nomad and I can't wait <laughs> to come home. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so the, the other, the other side of this, right. Is ancillary revenue. So just outside of sort of core, core revenue bases of rent and decreasing operating income. So you get more of that rent and all that type of stuff. Uh, more and more operators are looking for other ways that they sure. can sort of better utilize these things. What's what's kind of going on in that space? What are some of the interests there? Yeah, no, absolutely. We actually uh, just had a deal announced um, where we led a $20 million round of company called Airwave, which is putting in the digital backbone for multifamily. So, you know, this is kind of flipping some things on its head. I mean, obviously, when you move into your multifamily, generally, you know, you kind of call the cable guy and you got to set up an appointment and, you know, you wait a couple of weeks, they don't show up. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, you know, you finally have your cable and Wi-Fi, which is, you know, really, you know, it's, it's almost like the fourth utility at this point. I mean, I think people rather sit in the dark than not have their Wi-Fi. I mean, it's that's that's probably right at this point. And, you know, it can also become um, with something like Airwave where the owner can have the opportunity to own the network inside their building. So, you know, that gives them a few advantages, which is, a lot of people nowadays would rather just have their Wi-Fi hooked up and don't really care too much about, you know, necessarily the cable subscription. I mean, cutting the cord is, I don't even think people get the cord anymore. They're, they they start out without the cord. So, you know, what Airwave is doing is enabling building owners to put in their own sort of infrastructure and digital backbone to offer Wi-Fi as a service to their tenants. And that Wi-Fi service would be added on to their, their, their rent roll, right? So, you know, they're going to be charging, you know, each tenant, um, you know, money for for the Wi-Fi. And the, the other advantage of that is now the owner has their own network, right? And they can put smart locks and sensors and all these other things that don't work very well on cellular hubs, um, you know, around their building. And, you know, that, that process, you know, has a really great sort of tenant benefit. People, people obviously love that where they can use their computer sort of anywhere, and whether it's the common rooms or the gym or, you know, the co-working spaces or by the pool, um, as well as the owner being able to put sensors everywhere to make a better experience and also save money. You could put sensors in for water damage, right? Running toilets, all these types of things um, can reduce operating costs by doing, by, by preventing, you know, things like this from happening. So we're seeing that. Um, and the reason that we invested in Airwave is a huge trend where we think, you know, pretty much every new building that's going to be built is going to have a managed Wi-Fi. Um, 
you know, digital backbone put in and questionable whether or not they even have the cable companies as a choice. Yeah. Well, can't wait for that. Um, <laughs> being a California resident. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah, I ancillary revenue is a really interesting one. And to be totally honest, uh, something I really didn't know anything about until, uh, hopped into this, this whole thing. And I was like, wow, this is, I mean, I totally get it, but I um, didn't know too much about it. And yeah. So, okay. So that's, that's, that seems sort of fairly short term, right? What about longer term? I mean, you've invested in companies like Icon, um, which are three sure. printing houses, uh, solving huge, you know, supply issues out there. We're down like, what is it? 40 million units right now? 4 million units? I don't know. It's some big number. There's a, there's um, a, a house, there's a housing affordability and a housing crisis in terms of units, right? We all, we all know that. Yeah. So supply, so supply. Build, build supply. Um, so what, what are we, what are we looking at like 10, 10, 20 years from now? I mean, what, what, what are, what are some of these, these types of trends? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, looking at, looking at something like Icom, which is literally taking a 3d printer into the field and printing the frame of a house in cement rather than with sticks and bricks. Right. So, you know, really taking a process that hasn't fundamentally changed in hundreds of years, really. Right. Um, where, you know, there is no waste. Um, it can be done in, you know, a fraction of the time and, a, and at a fraction of the cost and, and fundamentally is better suited to earthquakes and hurricanes and all these other, these other issues, you know, that we have sort of in, in this world today. So, you know, we do see a world where, you know, ICON can solve a lot of these issues, um, you know, from an affordability, uh, piece of it, and also from a, you know, a structural integrity piece of it and, and areas of the country, you know, that are subject to, um, you know, to wild weather, hurricanes, all those types of things. So, you know, we really see ICON, you know, they actually just announced um, publicly a hundred unit um, uh, development in outside, of, in outside of Austin, Texas, that's done with Lennar. And, you know, today the first floor is built by ICON and the second floor is more of a traditional construction. But I think you can certainly envision a world, you know, not too far away from here where um, Icon can print, you know, multi-story, uh, multi-story structures. So you can Im imagine build-to-rent communities that could be printed, you know, in a fraction of the time of, of the things that we're, we're seeing today. Outside of, you know, building the framing, which, which Icon is doing, um, we were just looking at a company the other day that's, you know, doing drywall, robotic, you know, robot doing drywall. I mean, I think you know, there's different parts of these processes um, that we can we can improve with, you know, robotics going forward. And you know, that also just goes to the trend of labor being more expensive. I mean, construction is absolutely one of um, the areas where there's been a lot of pressure on both wages and lack of people doing it. And so, you know, if Icon and some of these other companies um, can reduce the number of um, you know, humans needed to, to build houses, you know, that's, that's going to be a really important thing. Yeah. It's skilled trades. You know, I, right. so I, one, one of the, one of the, I think best uses for robotics is, is human machine teaming, right? So making that, that person that you do have three, four times more efficient, um, is, is pretty cool stuff. Uh, something we talked a lot about at Accenture when I was there, um, was, you know, how do you, you have these skilled workers, how do you, uh, lever them into, um, as, as force multipliers, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the vision for someone like Icon, I mean, today they are the, they are the builder of the printer and they are the operator of the printer. But if you can imagine, they would like to just be the builder of the printer and, and sell that printer to a general contractor, you know, with plans who can print out, you know, as needed. And, 
you know, that that they become sort of the software layer of, of home construction. So I think you can see a future where icons, not just printing houses, but, you know, your, your local GC can print a house for you, too. So, so in that same vein, robotics and automation, right? That's something I talk a lot about. I, you know, anything that's dangerous, dirty or dull is going to get automated away. Um, laundry included, very much uh, big on that one. Um, and the other thing that I think is really interesting is this idea of autonomous vehicles, right? And what does a city look like when, you know, Elon gets his way, none of us are driving cars, uh, none of us own a car because, you know, we're just hopping in Tesla's like Uber. Um, what, what, what happens then, right? What do we do with these sort of urban centers that have been so car centric for so long? Um, how do we monetize that space? You know, how do we monetize parking structures again? How do we, you know, and that's why I like the electrical vehicle uh, infrastructure, right? It's because it's like, well, it doesn't just have to charge a car, you know, like it could charge. Well, yeah, I mean, you're going to see, I mean, I, I think, you know, besides autonomous vehicles, um, you know, we have a company in the portfolio, Zeal, uh, which is focused on deploying EV chargers with a low total cost of ownership into multifamily and commercial. So that's happening, but you're also having all the delivery trucks and, and things now becoming electrified as well. And there's a whole movement to get sort of car parks built in urban centers so that these these cars can charge overnight. So I think, you know, that EV, EV structure is happening. You know, autonomous vehicles and what you do with parking garages, I don't know, make them ghost kitchens. I'm not really sure. I mean, maybe maybe, maybe that's a, a new a new use for it is, is to make them ghost kitchens or something like that. But or possibly, you know, uh, distribution centers for your for your packages. I mean, I think, you know, every every building um, in the very real world and, and problem today is dealing with an onslaught of these you know e-commerce and packages. And do you repurpose parking lots as you know, package micro package delivery places or something like that. We've certainly seen a couple of businesses that are trying to sort of do that true last mile of package delivery and take the pressure off um, the package rooms, you know, both in commercial and multifamily buildings. So, you know, in terms of, you know, autonomous vehicles and city centers, I mean, there's been a lot of talk in New York about um, what we do with a lot of this office space that's still not inhabited. And, you know, is that going to become you know, solve some of the problems of residential real estate that we have today where there's not enough, not enough units, um, you know, perhaps they become, uh, you know, more, more residential in some of these urban centers than it is today with some of the, that commercial office actually becoming apartments. All right. Last topic here, last <laughs> few minutes, uh, ESG, right. Decarbonization of what we've built, um, you know, low impact building kind of going forward. Uh, the guys from Fifth Wall love to say it's going to take four trillion dollars to decarbonize all everything that we've built. I, I that seems low to me, um, but uh, whatever. Um, so what 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 are some of the things that are are the trends? I mean, New York. You live in New York. That well, has its own seven, right. <laughs> has its own, has it has. I mean, regulation is coming right. New York New York's kind of early on that, and the SEC announced their rules as well. So. What are, what are some of the ways that, you know, the LPs are, are looking at this and um, looking for options? Yeah, no, I mean, I think obviously it's 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 really becoming an issue and an issue that's in your face. I mean, I see the D rating outside of my building. So obviously, and I don't, I don't know if I've even seen an A anywhere. I mean, it seems to be mostly uh, C, D, and Fs in terms of how, how buildings are being rated on local law in A7. Uh, we actually recently made a company, uh, investment in a company called Measurable, um, which is 
first and foremost, trying to measure what the impact, you know, carbon impact of companies is. And I obviously think that's, you know, a little bit of the first step if you're going to try to assess the problem, right, and and judge which which assets, you know, need to need to be, um, you know, decarbonized in some way. So um, we made an estimate in that. I mean, I think there's a future, you know, where it becomes such an important piece of this that even any sort of debt piece that goes to a building is going to have to be rated like an S&P type of rating. Like, you know, what is their ESG rating? And, and something like measurable could become sort of the S&P of ESG in my mind in terms of, you know, rating buildings and, and rating projects. So, um, you know, we we certainly are, are, are quite focused on uh, things like with Zeal, with the electrification, things like measurable, uh, with looking at it. But it's, it's definitely becoming, you know, an increasing, you know, area for us to focus on. I think, though, that in the near term, as we talked about, I don't think there's there's sort of sticking carrot, right? So, you know, if if asset owners have to do something that's a stick, that's the regulations. And I think the carrot is, you know, decarbonizing in a way that's, you know, NOI accretive, right? So I think that's the way that we're thinking about it a little bit is how can we do, you know, um, do bring technologies to asset owners that actually are accretive while hitting their their ESG goals. Yeah. And maybe even offsetting some of the costs of that, uh, right. trillions and trillions of dollars that it's going to take to, well, to carbon to offsets are a whole nother thing. And there's a, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, is everyone just going to buy their way out of it and not change anything? So I guess that's a, a topic for another day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Liza, for coming on, talking, talking to all sorts of technology and investing with me. Um, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Scott. Have a great day. Awesome to talk to you. Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, if you want to connect with us, you can find us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Amenitizer Die. And I'll see you next time.